Hey everybody, how's everybody doing tonight? Uh, it's another week, um, another one down, just like what, four more left I think? Is it three, five, four or five left? Anyone know off the top of their head? No one knows, no one cares. You're just, just like, talk to me, Jonathan. All right, well anyways, my name's Jonathan. I think I've met a lot of you. If I haven't met you, uh, I'm the campus minister with RUF. I'm really glad you're here. I, uh, I really I thank you for taking time out of your schedule. Um, there's a lot of ways that you could spend a Tuesday evening in the middle of the week, um, studying being one of them, but also there's just a lot of better things that you could, well, I don't want to say it that way, but I'm glad you're here, um, that you would make faith community friends um, here a priority, so thank you. I'm personally thankful, um, and I hope that we can make RUF worth, the, worth that investment. Um, so, uh, as you know, most of you probably know, we've been talking through 1 John. We've been asking, what is love? By this we know love. Um, and tonight, we're coming to one of, I think, one of the most intense and powerful passages in our study across this semester. And I think um, tonight, this is one of the clearest pictures of what love is. When I was thinking through in December and November, like, what are we going to talk about this semester? Um, like, this text tonight was one of the things that jumped into my mind and... Um, like, this is kind of why I wanted to do First John is for this, this text. Um, tonight, John shows us what love is. And um, over and over again, we're just looking at five verses. And he uses the word love, some form of the word love. In Greek, it's agape. He uses it 14 times in only five verses. So just bam, 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 love, love, love. And so this one has a lot to say to us tonight. Um, and I think I want us to, tonight, I want us to see three things. Three things to see. First, Three ways that we see love. First, in God's character. Next, in God's action. And finally, in our response. Love in God's character. Love in God's action. And love in our response. So I'm going to read the text, um, and then we'll dive in. So this is 1 John chapter 4, verses 7-12. through 12. Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought to love one another. No one has seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. Let me pray first real quick. Father in heaven, thanks for this time tonight. Thank you that we can take a few moments and peer into your word and um, hear your spirit speak to us. I pray, Father, tonight that you would be present here, spirit, that you would be present here, that you would cut into our hearts and show us, reveal to us who we are, and... um, change us as a result of your word. So be with me as I talk and these friends as they listen. In your name we pray. Amen. Robert, I'm a little teen. Do you mind turning it down just a little bit? Thanks, man. Appreciate it. I think that's a technical term, tingy. <coughs> so first thing, first thing I want us to see tonight, God's character, love, God's character, love. Um, so I think this should be sort of obvious is, um, but it can't left, be left without said, because I think many of us are asking today, who is God? What is, does, you know, who is, what is this God like? 
And John tells us some pretty important things. He says, in, he says in like the simplest way he can possibly say it to us. He says, God is love. God is love. Well, what does that mean? What does it actually mean when he says God is love? It means, it means that God's fundamental disposition towards everything around him, all of his creation, God's fundamental disposition is love. The Bible shows us over and over again from the first book, Genesis, to the, set, to the very end, Revelation, God is love. God is love. God's main characteristic is love. So Genesis, Genesis 1 God creates the world, right? Here is God. He comes and he, you know, it tells us in the first couple of chapters, God creating the world. And whether or not it's through evolution, evolution in millions of years or whether it was six days, honestly, that's not the question that the text is answering. The text is showing us who God is and what he does. And it shows us one important thing. It shows us that God is the source of creation and that everything he did in creation was in love. That he loves his creation. He creates a wonderful world. This whole world that we live in. Full of sights and sounds. He created it because he loves creation. He creates humans. Human beings. Us who can love each other. Love our creation. Love God. He creates good food. He creates drink. He creates sex. Relationships. Sunsets. The Grand Canyon. Cities. Snowy mountains. Starry skies. Little chubby babies. Everything. (laughs) God creates it and he loves it. He loves his creation. He creates everything out of love. God's fundamental disposition is towards love. But then I bet some of you are probably thinking, you're like, wait a minute. This is, this is the God in the Old Testament. What is, there are some parts in the Old Testament that don't seem very loving. God is full of, he seems often in the times full of wrath and even cruelty in the Old Testament. What do we do with that? Is that compromise that God is loving? Well, short answer is no. Um, and I, that's a whole sermon in and of itself. And if you have questions, I'd love to talk with you about that. But um, I want to give us a short, illustri- a short example of even in the Old Testament. So um, Exodus 34. Exodus 34. Um, we have to, to, to show you this. To Exodus 34, what's happened? To understand what's happening in Exodus 34, we have to walk a mile in the Israelites' shoes. So who are the Israelites? The Israelites are the people of God who had been slaves in Egypt for 400 years. Um, and then all of a sudden, some guy comes out of, some guy comes out of, the, out of the desert and says, I'm going to rescue you. And your God, who's the God of your fathers, is going to rescue you. And they're like, what? We've been slaves here for 400 years. What are you talking about? And all of a sudden, there's these ten plagues that wipe out the superpower of the world, bring it to his knees, take the people, and there's a lot of them, hundreds of thousands of them, they cross this Red Sea in this giant miraculous event, and all of a sudden, they're like, what just happened? What, who, who, all of a sudden, there's this God who's saying, I'm your God, I'm the God of your people, and you know what, think about it, if this had happened to you, you would have been like, who is this God? Who is this God that just did this incredible event? Who is this God that rescued us? And this in Exodus 34, this is what we get. This is what God, he describes himself. He says, he says, Yahweh, Yahweh. That's his God's personal name. Like my name is Jonathan. He says, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands. His first words to tell his people, this is who I am. 
is he says, I'm a God of mercy and grace, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. And that word steadfast love, that's the word in Hebrew, it's hesed love. Hesed love. And that means basically promise-making, consistent, unchanging love. The first words that God uses to describe himself to his people are of, of a disposition towards love. If there is one thing you hear me say tonight, if there is, I'm telling you, if there is one thing you hear me say all semester, I want you to hear this. The God of Christianity, the one and true living God, is, is fundamentally dis- disposed towards you and towards his creation in love. That is the first thing. Never forget that. Never forget that. So that, let me bring us back to the text. Then. Let's bring that back to 1 John. I want you to notice something important about this. Notice it does not say that love is God. It, it says God is love. And that's really important. Why, what's the difference? Love is God. God is love. Well, if love is God, if love is God, then that means that basically the highest important, most important thing in the universe is basically some pretty vague ephemeral, removed feeling of warmth and benevolence towards mankind. It's not a lot you can grab onto. And if love is God, that means that there's tons of pressure on you and me to basically do the best you and I can to treat those around us with self-sacrifice. It basically means all the pressure is on us. You have to go out and love someone as well as you can. Maybe you'll measure up, maybe you won't. But that's not what John says here, is it? That's not what he says. He says, God is love. And again, here, remember, he uses his personal name. That means God is a real person. He's a real person whose fundamental disposition is towards love. That means as a real person, he has likes and dislikes, just like you and me. He has a personality. He cares. He thinks. He acts. He wills. And, and in all of those things that he does as a person, they're loving. They're loving. They're loving. And our actions, how you and I act, what's a mixed bag? Some days we're more loving, some days we're not. Some days we're selfish and we're even cruel. God is not that way. Everything that God does consistently is loving. God is love, and that means all of his actions are motivated towards love. And I want want you to feel the, the challenge that this presents for us tonight. It means that if God is love, then 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 true love, true love is, uh, this is a bold statement I'm going to say, but I think I'm right here. That means if this is true, then true love is found exclusively in the Christian faith. Exclusively in the Christian faith. Let me put it this way. Without this foundation of God is love, you have a real challenge for, for any love, basically. And, and I want to prove this to you. This is a really bold claim I'm going to make, but I want to try and prove it. If, if we are human beings, if we as homo sapiens, the species of homo sapiens, if we are the result of blind material forces, just natural, just chance, just somehow material forces created us to be what we are, and we're the result of random natural selection, um, then I think you have, I think we have a real problem, I think we have a real problem explaining love. If love is just some sort of, maybe you could say like, well, love is just like some mature form of civilized you know, pre-civilized animalistic herd mentality. Maybe, you know, I've, I've read that over the years that maybe something like the care for others in the herd led to greater survival of those in the herd, which means that somehow 
some sort of love created you know, us as human beings so that we survive better. So that basically survival of the fittest was the group that was more caring or loving. Um, and so that's where love came from. But I think, I think that's wrong for two reasons. I want to show you, I want to look at why that's wrong. First, if God is not real, then that means I think you really struggle to explain love. I think you struggle to explain love on a satisfactory level. Well, what do I mean by that? Because if love is only, if it's just a result of, of natural forces, material natural forces, then that means that love in your brain is basically just chemistry. It means that love is just a combination, just sort of a random cocktail of serotonin, dopamine, and oxytocin at any, at any moment. Which means that love is not really anything more than just sort of this chemical reaction in your brain. You know what that means then? Feel the challenge of this. This means that when you feel love towards your parents, or towards your friends, or towards your girlfriend or boyfriend, or that means it may not actually be real. It's just a chemical reaction. That's all it is. But that, I want to, and that can't be right, can it? Like when we love someone, we think something's actually there. There's actually something more than chemistry there. Surely, think of the moment when you fell loved with a family reunion or on a date or in a holidays when you're around here with your family. I remember when I was with my, when I was getting married and my wife comes down the aisle and I see her and I was, I was incredibly in love with her. That can't just be chemicals in my brain. There has to be something more than that. I think without God, God is love, I think you really struggle to explain what love actually is sat on, a, on a satisfactory level. But I think there's something else. If we're just the result of natural forces and there's no God and God is not the source of love, then I think you really struggle to oblige or compel or even re- require other people to love. If God is not real, then, and we're all here by chance, then I think you really would struggle to tell someone, you're not being loving, you should be more loving. Let me tell you why. Because I think, let me start this way, all of us, Christian, non-Christian, doesn't matter where you come in tonight, all of us think that we need to be a, a more loving society. We all try and endeavor to be more loving towards those who are around us, right? Um, and, and really, it's only like a sociopath who doesn't think that. Like, what's a sociopath? It's someone who doesn't regard, doesn't care about other people um, and basically ignores normal social rules and says they don't apply to them. So we all agree, right, that love is a good thing, that we need love in our society. But, again, if humans are the result of only just natural material forces, how in the world can you compel, how can you call someone How can you oblige someone to love others? How can you have the authority to say murder and rape are wrong and philanthropy is good? If there's no greater force telling us that this is true. Well, you could say, well, they're good for society. They make society better. Well, I would challenge back, well, what's good? What is good for society? Why is your version of good for society the one that should triumph? Because there's a whole lot of... We live in a big world that's got a bunch of narratives that are saying this is good for society. One version of good for society says women should be quiet, should wear full clothes covering, and should be basically suppressed. Another version says that women should be totally free, anonymous, and do whatever... What's to say one version of good for society is not 
better than the other one? Why is it your good? Ask an anthropologist, and different societies will tell you what's good for society. Well, if, 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 if that's true, I, you know, and if we're just the result of natural forces, I think you really would struggle to say, you need to be more loving, because how do you know what love is? How do you know why your version of love is right? Why do I take this long diatribe? Why do I try to show this? Because I think that you and I need, we need God is love. First, to explain our own love that we feel in a satisfactory way, but also to actually begin to say, this is the love that we need as a community, as a family, as an RUF community, as a school. Without God, I really don't think you can oblige or compel others to love. Atheists, of course, can do great moral acts. You know, they can do loving things. I'm not going to say that atheists are doing are like all horrible people who do unloving things. But I do think that it really they would struggle to compel love. Love has to start with God. And it has to start with a God who's actually loving. And that's what we get here. We get a God whose fundamental disposition is towards love. Okay, so that's the first thing, God's character. God is a character of love. Second thing, second thing I want to see, these next two ones will be faster, I promise. God's action. God's action is love. <clears throat> so our first point is God's character. God is a person who is fundamentally disposed to love his creation. creation. But I made the case that we should consider God as a person, not just as some being out there, but as a person. Well, how do we judge a person's character? We do it by their actions. Are they, do they do loving things? So we need to look at God's actions. Is God actually a loving person? Does he do loving actions? Again, short answer, yes. I've already shown one example in Exodus. God rescues his people because he's loving. But John gives us an even greater example. Look with me at verse 9 and 10. If I can find it in my Bible. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. I want to break these down verses, especially, I want to break these verses down, especially verse 10 for us. Um, First, verse 10, look at this. Not that we have loved God. Not that we have loved God. That means that even in the rest of scripture, it tells us that we are consistently hostile towards God. Before God moves in our lives, we are hostile towards him. We want nothing to do with him. Not only are we indifferent or neutral, but we actually are alienated against God so that God has to take the initiative. He has to move towards us. Second, what does it say? He loved us. He loved us. He does not just love an abstraction. God is not just a being who's just like, love, man, just fill the world with love. No, God is a, he loves in very particular ways. He loves us. He loves us, the text tells us. Well, how? Third, it says he sent his only son into the world to be the propitiation for our sins. The propitiation for our sins. This brings us back to sin again. We've dealt with this a couple of times throughout the semester. What is sin? Again, it's a whole sermon, but in short, sin, sin is the rejection of God's love. Sin is our failure to love those around us. Sin is our failure to love God. And sin deserves wrath. Sin deserves wrath. And Jesus is the propitiation for that wrath. Well, what is a propitiation? 
Propitiation, whenever you hear that word, I want you to think of this. I want to think of you, you to think of deflected wrath. Deflected wrath, something that deflects or, or causes something to move off course. Think of it this way. Let's say you commit the worst possible crime in the world, whatever you think it is. The worst possible crime, and you're guilty. You know you're guilty. The judge and jury know you're guilty. And you're sentenced to life in prison. So you're on your way to prison, and you're being led to the prison cell, and just as the door is starting to shut, it's just closing, you're like, I'm done. I'm done for. This foot goes into the door, stops it. This hand opens the door, pulls you out, puts himself in, and closes the door. That's what happens in propitiation. It's deflected wrath. Someone else pays the penalty for the sin that you did, that I did, and takes and says, I will take the pain. I will take the punishment for that. So Jesus is our propitiation. That means he deflects God, the wrath that we deserve onto himself. He takes the wrath so that we don't get the punishment. But there's more to that. Look, in, look at verse 9. Do you see a parallel? This is, this is some close reading, but do you see a parallel between verses 9 and 10? I think there's a pattern here. And the pattern is love, God, Son, result. Look at the verses again. Love, God, Son, result. So both verses say this is love. You'll say that both verses in some say, say this is love. And then both verses reference God. And then both verses point to Jesus. Do you see that? And then both of them point to a result of God's love and Jesus' love. Verse 10, it's just propitiation. Wrath deflected. But then in verse 9, what's the result in verse 9? That we might live through him. Not only does God's love mean that the wrath we deserve is deflected onto Jesus, it means that the life that Jesus deserves is given to us. Eternal life. The life that Jesus earned, deserved, merited because he is the Holy Son of God. We get that life. That's the gospel. That's what God's love does. It deflects wrath that we deserve onto God and it deflects Jesus' perfect holy life onto us. That's what we celebrate on Easter last week. Easter is the celebration that Jesus, who is God's Son, died. That's Him taking the wrath. He dies. But then He also comes back to life. He rose from the dead. That's the life that we get. So God's action. What is God's action? God's action is love. He moved towards us in the midst of our sin and loves us. Finally, our response. What is our response to be? Well, it's obvious. It's love. (laughs) It's love. If this is true, if everything I've said so far is true, how do we respond? And here we get to the real heart of what this passage is about, why John is telling us this. He says, look at verse 7 and verse 11. Verse 7, Beloved, let us love one another. Verse 11, Beloved, if God so loved us, if this is true, we also ought to love one another. John sandwiches in this passage. He he bookends it. He bookends it with love. He says, let us love one another. He wants to stir his readers up. He wants to stir them up. He's like, look what God has done for you. Now, if this is true, go love those around you. Love one another. Isn't this amazing what God has done? If it's true, you can't just ignore it. You have to respond to it. And part of that response is in love. So I was thinking of how to illustrate this, and um, 
so I've been spending some nights out, uh, now that it's getting cooler at night, uh, out on our patio. And um, we've got a patio, and right next to the patio, we've got a brick wall. Um, and the brick wall gets a solid like 10 or 12 hours of daylight throughout the day. And so it's starting to get hot, and I'm sure it's going to get real hot, and I'm going to want to die. But it's starting to get hot, and this wall gets, it gets pretty warm throughout the day. Um, and so then, at the end of the night, you go out and you sit on a chair, and it radiates the heat back onto the patio, and it's really nice. It's really nice out there. Um, and because it, it's retaining that heat and then sending it back out, even when the, as the sun goes down and the temperature starts to drop a little bit. And I was thinking, I was like, wait, this is how love works. This is how lo- our love should work. Just as the brick wall has been warmed by the sun and it continues to radiate that heat after, God, after the sun has gone down, so we too were warmed by God's love. We see what God has done for us. We're warmed by it. And then even though God is not necessarily, we can't see him, look at what he says in verse 12, no one has seen God, but we're still, we go out and we radiate the love that we get to the world around us. Jesus is not on earth right now. No one has seen God. The sun has gone down, (laughs) S-U-N. The English language is funny that way. The sun has gone down, but his love, his wrath-deflecting Warming love, has, it warms our hearts so that you and I, warmed by that love, go out into our community. And we love those around us. We can't see God, but we can feel the effects of him, right? As we see his love. That's what it begins to mean in verse 12 when he says, love is perfected. Love is perfected. It means that just like a warm wall points to the sun's existence, so our love points to the S-O-N's, son's existence. It means that when we love, his love is made complete. It's made perfect. It's done. The job is finished. Remember, John is writing, he says, I want you to go out and love those well. I want you to go out and love them well. So I want to hone this application for us just a little bit. I could just say go out and love, and that's, that's true, but I want to try and personalize it a little bit. And one way I think of thinking about it this week is in the idea of forgiveness. I know that some of you in this room have been hurt by other people in this room. And I know that some of you have been hurt very badly by people out there in the world. Family, friends. Some of you have been hurt sexually. Some of you have been hurt physically. Some of you have been hurt emotionally. Relationally. And sacrificial love means that you begin to give up the right to be angry at even people who have hurt you very, very badly. And I'm not saying that there aren't consequences from sin. Hear me say that. If someone has done something to you sexually or physically, that's not okay, and there need to be legal consequences. So if you need to talk to me, we can do it in private. There can still be consequences. There should be consequences for that. Um, So I'm not saying you should just forgive and forget. That's not what I'm saying. Hear me say that. But it does mean that no matter how badly you've been hurt, and this is hard to hear, no matter how badly you've been hurt, the gospel gives you the tools and the resources to work hard, to do the hard work, to pray, to fight, to give up the wrath against those who have hurt you. To give up that personal wrath just like the wrath that you deserve was deflected onto Jesus. That means 
there's no wrath that we have to we have to give up our wrath. He gives up the right to condemn, just like Jesus doesn't condemn us. So think through what are those people that just struggle to forgive? Family, friends, boyfriend, girlfriend. I know this is hard work, y'all. This is hard, hard work. But the gospel means that we are called to love one another, and that means radical forgiveness, just like we've been radically forgiven. Love, John says, is sacrificing the right to condemn them, forgiving them. So, y'all, we see love in three ways in this passage. We see love in God's character. He is fundamentally disposed towards you and towards me in love. He's... He's a God who proves it with his actions. He proves his love towards us by moving towards us. If that's true, then we have to... If this is really true, then we move towards others in love. Do you see the animating power that this gives us? The life-changing power that this gives us? And so, how do you begin to respond to that love? Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, thanks for this text. Thanks for how it challenges us, Father. Oh, man. It is... This is hard stuff. It's hard for us to understand. Um, (coughs) It's hard for us to do. So we need your spirit to till up our hearts just like the pecan groves are getting tilled up for water. We need your spirit to begin tilling our hearts anew to receive your love so that we can bear the fruit, which is loving others well. Um, Father, do that in us. Spirit, do that in us. Show us Jesus' great love so that we can be a more loving community. I pray this for myself. I pray it for my friends here. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. All right, guys, we have one last song for you. It's Oh, Give Thanks. Most of you know that.